Eventfire Solutions is proud to support Extended. You can find us at eventfiresolutions.co.uk. Enjoy the programme. The Colours of Their Brothers Our world is decorated, but obliviously we walk past, and mostly only notice when they are brought to half-mast. In the country I grew up in, there was one for each side. A flag can unite us, but just as easily divide. And then after I joined up, they suddenly meant more. Each time that I saw one, my tears would now pour. The red, white and blue that bled into that cotton, watching six of our men carry him, draped in a coffin. Then the bloodiest day for our own British troops, when all in one sitting, we lost five sets of boots. A mix of football and regiment flags as the stretchers went past. Each soldier tucked under, asleep everlast. Yes, each flag was different, but all the same side. United by the country, they fought for and died. I imagine that triangle handed over with sorrow to the family of each soldier who gave his tomorrow. And I watched from the ramp as they stand and dwell, then touch for the last time their brother who fell. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and thank you for joining us today. Liz McConaughey spent a total of 17 years flying with the RAF's Chinook fleet. She was the youngest aircrew member to deploy to Iraq and was also the only female crewman on the Chinook wing for four years. Liz completed two deployments to Iraq, followed by 10 deployments to Afghanistan. In her book, Chinook Crew Chick, she regales her story from the front line to her personal life with an honest intensity and in the end with great wisdom. Liz, welcome to Extended. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an absolute delight to to have you. Um, listen, your your career was an interesting one in in the whole read, but let's go right back to the beginning and talk about how a young girl from Northern Ireland got involved with the RAF. Where did it all start? So none of my family, my you know my parents or grandparents are, are forces, so we didn't come from a forces background. But my brother decided that he wanted to join the army when he was seventeen. So uh, in order to do that, he had to go up to a place called Palace Barracks, which is back home in Northern Ireland, where I, li- where I grew up, um, and do a thing called a barb test, which is the army entrance test. Uh, and I went with him. So I went with him just for the afternoon. And I sat in the career, well, the, well it's not a careers office, it was essentially sort of the army recruitment office um, up at Palace Barracks while he went in to do his test. And there was a magazine on the table and it had a, a chap hanging out the side of a helicopter on what I thought was a piece of rope. So I mentioned to the guy who was there, I said, oh, what's this, this job, this guy on the rope? And he said, well, it's not a rope, it's actually a piece of wire. And the job is helicopter crewman. And I I was sold. I just looked at it and thought, what an amazing job. And I didn't really know much more about it at that point. But I thought, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. And, and that's kind of where it began. So I then made a few more inquiries at Palace Barracks, went up there for an initial interview as well for the RAF, obviously, this time. And got accepted to go across to Cranwell for Emirate Crew Selection and, and somehow I managed to pass that as well and then yeah I was accepted into the RAF and joined on my 19th birthday straight from, straight right. from school straight from my levels. Let me just go back then um, let's talk about Northern Ireland uh, a military career was there any sensitive sensitivities around that at the time? So it's been very strange back home in Northern Ireland in terms of the public feeling towards the army versus what's like the RAF. And that's the vibe I've picked up through my whole career, really, is that I've never had to make it such a secret of what I've done. 
um, throughout that time. But my brother certainly has, you know, a, a, yeah. a, a different kettle of fish now. But I think back at the time, him saying that he would join the army was was very, very different. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I still had to do security briefs every time I went home on leave to see mom and dad for the first few years. But yeah. um, the general public sort of uh, uh, acceptance, I guess, of the other forces seemed to be much better. Right. Okay. Interesting. And you had some um, some challenges getting yourself to to London and to to Cranwell that you overcame. But they, in that early part of the book, suggest that there was a bit of metal about you. Yeah. Yeah. So I won't give too much away about the book, but yeah, I had a huge car crash uh, on the the day that I was going to to join up or to do my part two medical actually, and um, I very nearly didn't make it across to England. Um, I'd only been to England once before, you know, I was really, really kind of wet behind the ears, as I say, you know, and, and by the time I joined the RAF, that was, I think, my second visit to England, and I'd never been to, I'd never had a curry. I'd also uh, thought Leeds was somewhere near London, because I just was so unworldly wise at that point. I was so young and naive, but yes, I, I must have some sort of tenacity about me to, to keep on pushing through all those challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so tell us about um, getting accepted and working your way into the REF. How did those those early days and weeks work? So to go through for aircrew, um, you actually, the, the training, you come out as a sergeant. So and the reason for that being is that you have to have a, a little bit of rank about you to be able to command the rear of the aircraft and to brief a lot of the junior soldiers. So as part of that, I mean, this, the training is quite intense. It's a three-month training package well it was in my day and that's to teach you leadership so that actually when you do come out as a sergeant and we used to be nicknamed by the rest of the air force the plastic sergeants because we'd done no time at all i mean i'd been in the RAF for three months and came out as a sergeant and my brother had already been in the army a year and a half and was still yeah, a yeah, yeah. so yeah. yeah that wasn't particularly popular but um and, yeah and so how was that, that physical the physical side of the training had you done anything to to help you get into that were you into fitness you know was there was all that part of the journey so that's that is exactly it I mean I was I played hockey at school but I wasn't I was by no means a runner and I mean there's one title or there's one chapter in the book called fat lass at the back and that was me I was the girl who you know just kept on kept on plodding it's probably a good way to summarize it and I think you know I used to, I was training to come over to Cranwell I think I used to run to the end of the road and back which was about a mile and then turn around and get back home and that was my run done for the day so two miles but I mean as your career in the forces progresses you suddenly you learn to weave that fitness into into your life and you know by the end of it, I was running marathons etc which again comes through in the book but um yeah, it was a bit of a baptism of fire. You know, you start at the basic training and you hand it a pine pole to put in your shoulder and you go running with a pine pole back in those days and making tripods to do all these leadership exercises. So, I mean, it's not easy. Um, it's, yeah. it's pure grit and determination. But what I did get from the very, very second I arrived at Cranwell was this camaraderie, this just a real team effort to get through. You know, everyone wanted everybody to make it through the course. And yeah. Uh, and those people are the people that actually, I think, you know, very much had in the early days, certainly, you know, that gave me that trampoline to get me through those basic training hurdles. Yeah. Now, I don't want to make too much of a thing of it, but you are a woman, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't want to make too much of a thing of it because you don't in the book and you make it quite clear that you wanted to succeed because of you, not because of any sort of quotas or because you were a, a, a bit different but how challenging were some of those early um, days and weeks for you because there weren't very many women in um, in the RAF in any of the forces actually yeah um, back in back in the day so you had to overcome a lot of hurdles um, yeah that was, also appear to sort of build your training. Well, um, I had Emma and Kate, who were the two girls in my basic training. So it was three of us. And uh, I mean, we became thick as thieves because we lived in our own little end of the block. And, you know, and the the rest of the lads really did look after us. Um, And then that got whittled down. Whenever we finished it at Cranwell for basic training, I got sent on to helicopters. And then I was the only one on my my, uh, course at that time because Emma was on a slightly different course. It was delayed. So suddenly I was the only one. And then... Then I got to Odium and I was posted on the squadron with another female pilot. And I say there was just the two of us, two girls yeah. in the entire squadron. And the entire squadron t- was between 60 and 90 people. So, um, yeah, it was 
I wouldn't say there was challenges. It was just there was nowhere to hide. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I mentioned in the book about how I've been the only female crewman at Odium for quite some years. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I was not the first uh, crewman that was, or female crewman that was crewman before me, and there was certainly crewman after me, and there's still a lot of girls there now. Well, I don't say a lot, but maybe three or four. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. feels like a lot. But um, whenever, whenever I was the only one, I mean, also being blonde and from Northern Ireland, I had nowhere to hide. So if I had a few too many drinks one night or if I parked badly on station or if I was breaking any rules, I was it was easy to single me out <laughs> so I couldn't get away with anything. Yeah. Um, listen, let me go back then. You talk about going straight onto helicopters. Understand the, the picture that um, snapped you into the RAF right from the beginning. But what was that journey where potentially you could have gone fixed wing you could have gone helicopters. Where where was that point where you uh, even made that decision or was it made for you? No, I'm so glad you asked actually, Peter, because there's a story that I, I don't think I put in the book, which was whenever I went up to Palace Barracks the second time to visit, and this was for my sort of pre-Cranwell interview, I uh, pulled up at the main gate in my little Corsa and pulled in to get my car pass. And a Chinook helicopter went right over the top of me at about 20 feet to land on the HLS, which is the helicopter landing site at Palace. And I was just in awe. I mean, you look up and you see the belly of a Chinook is huge. I mean, the thing yeah. just makes everything rattle and the noise just hits you straight in the chest. And I just fell, I literally fell in love with the aircraft there and then. I thought maybe it's a sign, maybe it was just, and, and even after that for a while, I thought, well, maybe it's just commonplace. These helicopters must go in and out of this army base all the time. And it's only now then when I got to Chinooks and, and was recalling this story to someone, they said, Liz, we hardly ever used to go into Palace Barracks because it's such a small landing site. Chinooks yeah. very rarely ever go in there. And I would still look back on that day and wonder if there was a sign maybe that that was it. That was my my reason for living. But um, yeah. so Chinook was always the only thing I ever wanted to fly on. And I mean, if you're going to be a crewman, which was my job, um, it's the obvious choice because, um, you know, Merlins and Pumas, which were the other options at the time and search and rescue as well. Um, I mean, they've all got their place, don't get me wrong. But as a crewman, your job is working the shop floor and you don't get a much bigger shop floor than on a Chinook. And what doesn't fit inside, then you then put underneath on the straps. And and we've got three, which is, you know, three yeah. times more than anyone else, any other helicopter. So if you're going to do a job, you know, and you want to do it properly, you've got to go on Chinooks. It's the only, it's the only way. Okay, so I'm going to come back to being the, the role of the crewman. I'm also going to come back and talk about the Chinook itself um, in a little bit. I just want to understand a bit more about that transition from the through the oper- in, into the operational um, end because in the book you make that transition and either I misunderstood it or was a bit surprised by how rapidly you were almost on the front line. Yeah, so uh, I joined at a time when there wasn't as many holds as there are now. Um, so I went through Cromwell training was three months and then straight to Shawbury and that's a six-month course. So I found myself at Odium um, in summer 2002, uh, sorry, 2003. So I was, I had my 21st birthday when I was on the operational conversion um, unit, which is essentially the Chinook school where you get, uh, well, I guess you just convert everything from a small little helicopter, which is what we used at Shawbury to the big beast um, and all the idiosyncrasies that go with that and a lot of the tech that goes with the Chinook because the Chinook, you need, as a crewman, you need to know all the, the tech and, and ins and outs. Of, so if something breaks down the back, you can fix it. So it's quite intense. But yeah, I did that when I was 20, uh, sorry, 20 into 21. And then I uh, hit 27 squadron was my first squadron. And within a couple of months, I was in the Falklands. And then by the summer that year, was in, in Iraq. Um, and I was only age 21 and was one of the young, I, th- I was the youngest to go to Iraq, the youngest air crew, and myself and another colleague both have air crew cadet written on the, around the edge of our Iraq medals, and we're the only two people that have got that, because right. you're still an air crew cadet until you're essentially combat ready, and your yeah. combat ready came a few months later. Right. So you're in in a combat zone, but you're not combat ready. Yeah. So st- still a cadet on, on paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me just briefly about the first Falklands trip then so the Falklands is a great place to cut your teeth um when I was down there um 
in 2004 that would have been um there was still lots of bars so anyone who's watching this who's a, a veteran of the forces who's been to the Falklands back in the day as we call it they used to be every section had a bar so every sectional camp you know that we we had one as the Chinook fleet the engineers had their own one uh, the catering fleet had one air traffic had one the Herc boys had one so you could do a pretty extensive bar crawl if you wanted in one night never mind a whole week so the first like the first deployment I had down there was very much work hard, play hard. Um, and because there was only one Chinook down there, whenever it had to go into servicing, it was taken offline for a few days and they sort of rejigged the servicing so everything would happen at once. So there was times where you wouldn't fly for three or four days, which meant that you just <laughs> went to the pubs for three or four days. But um, whenever you were flying, the Chinook was the one thing that kept the island going because none of the sites on Western Ireland were accessible by road. So places like Byron and, and Mount Dallas, you could only get to with Chinook. So we would undersling a lot of the supplies over to those sites. Um, and it was about maybe an hour, hour and a quarter's flying time across the West Island. And we'd take everything from, you know, new landovers, new aerials um, for the radar sites, um, fuel. We would carry fuel across and fuel bollocks, which are these big like balls that hang under the aircraft full of fuel, obviously. So we'd carry yeah. them across the refuel site there. Um, but it would filter all the way down to moving personnel around and also moving rations, beer. Angel Delight always sticks in my head because he used to see these crates, these undersung loads and these basically big pallets made up with lots of lots of Foster's beer and some packets of Angel Delight. <laughs> like one <more. laughs> Obviously, it was on the way. That was quite yeah. an easy thing to, to send yeah. across the island. But And we moved a lot of the civvies as well. Some of the, the British right. brothers that lived down there, we'd move them around as well. So okay. uh, cutting your teeth on your trade, it doesn't really get much better. Yeah. And what was the weather like when you were down there? Uh, fairly mixed. You no, know, they used to say you'd have four seasons in four seasons in one day in the Falklands, and it never a true word has been said. Yeah, um, yeah. So you could, and that's where again cutting your teeth as an aviator really came in because you could be flying in pretty decent weather one minute, and suddenly having to really think about your fuel management, your diversions, all your navigation, all the safety that comes with flying over high ground and rising ground when you don't know exactly you know what's ahead of you. So. Um, and, and you have to be on your game because the weather yeah. could come in so, so quickly. But it's beautiful yeah. whenever it's whenever it's clear weather. I've never seen – I mean, we used to fly around the edge of the coastline and dolphin uh, – sorry, the whales used to come in and play underneath the wow. downwash of the Chinook because they love – I think it was something to do with the, the downwash of the blades on the water. Okay. They quite like the vibrations they used to play. And if you're sat wow. on the wall watching that, I mean, it's not, it doesn't get much better, does it? No, no, but but it was back to the UK and then then out to your first um, deployment to Iraq. Tell us how, as you were still quite young then, uh, yeah. that must have felt. Yeah, still just twenty one, and I'm glad I did it in that order. And it just, I mean, the squadron who was twenty seven squadron at the time obviously must have put some sort of thought behind this. But learning your trade when you're not getting shot at or you're not, you know, in a hot landing site is definitely the way to do it. And then practicing your trade when you're actually out in war is slightly a better way so um yeah I got to Iraq that summer and it was still extremely warm and I think that was the first thing I really picked up on was the heat and coming from Northern Ireland we are not used to that heat at all I think most people even in the UK up until obviously recent recent summers are just not used to the intense heat you know we're talking 45 degrees and on top of that you're wearing your body armor helmet carrying a weapon everywhere for the first time so, you know, I think I referred to it once as like something tells me we're not in Kansas anymore. And it very much was that. Um, yeah. And then the tasking that I was doing in Iraq was uh, what was called routine tasking. So I got there whenever the war had actually finished. But obviously there was still a lot of infrastructure to be moved around. British British troops on the ground, which meant that we had to hold a thing called IRT, which was immediate response team yeah. which essentially then became the merch when we got to Afghanistan but it was essentially that flying ambulance and that was held from a, a, a base that was halfway up the country between Basra where we mainly operated from and then uh, in Baghdad so that's the geography of the country really north and south and then Alamara was halfway between and we would base from Alamara and hold this IRT so that we could essentially cover the biggest area for any British troops that got injured. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And how long were you were you out there first time round? So we did two months then. So it was two month deployments yeah. and then back to the UK and then I went out again the following spring. So you would right. because we, we um shared the duty with the other squadron, which was the eighteen squadron. Uh, and each squadron at the time had an A flight and a B flight. So you would do essentially do your two months on A flight where I was. Right. 
and then 18 would send out their guys and then 27 would send out the other flight and then 18 would send their guys and then it was back to you so essentially it was two months on eight months off two months on yeah 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 and again what were the conditions like for you out there so it was actually it was a lot more benign than Afghanistan it still didn't really feel like war if I'm being honest we had the accommodation was big tented, sort of C-span tents that were actually pretty, pretty good. Um, I shared a tent with the lads because that's what I always want. I mean, when you're out there, there's nothing lonelier than when you get siphoned off as a woman to go and stay with loads of girls you don't know from Eve and, you know, you don't work with them. So you've got a less in common. Um, so I would always stay in the, the same tent as the guys and they were brilliant. I had a little pod in my corner, which is essentially just a, it's not exactly what it sounds like, a little pod that was made of net. And inside there, you would have your hanging drawers with your socks and pants and T-shirts and stuff on it and a cot bed. And then we would all bring out our own duvet covers. So everyone's bed space looks slightly different. I think mine was a pink Barbie one or something ridiculous. But um, so I had and I used to be able to like hang my towel and some um, flags around my pod so that I had a bit of privacy to get changed in. And and it was fine. It, it wasn't. Um, I certainly I think that's where the start I refer in the book a lot of my normality bar and my normality bar of the years started to go up and even in Iraq it was very much like the first time I went to a hot landing site it had been mortared the week before and I was like oh this is dangerous it was mortared last week this place and then the next time I went in it had been mortared like the day before and then suddenly you'd find yourself going in it'd been mortared that morning or like an hour before you were going so it slowly crept up that normality bar and and those things that originally felt quite dangerous suddenly weren't dangerous at all anymore. How dangerous did it get then? Iraq was, wasn't bad. It really wasn't. I mean, it was, um, mm. I don't think I ever got shot at in Iraq. It was more that IDF and indirect fire. When we mm. left Iraq, I know that there was a lot of indirect fire on Basra and Basra itself. So I can't say that for the British forces, it wasn't dangerous. It was just that during my time there, it didn't feel particularly dangerous. Yeah. But I did, um, there was a helicopter crash when I was there, which was one of the Pumas that crashed at Basra. And that was mm. probably my first exposure to not really how dangerous war was, but how dangerous aviation can be and how how quickly it can go wrong and the catastrophic effects of that. Yeah, okay. Um, was that one of those first sort of shots across the bow? Yeah, I think so. That was the... Okay. Um, the crew that I knew, the crew, the Chinook crew that went to recover the, the Puma guys after the crash and, and they took them to Shiber Hospital, which was kind of the next base along from Basra. Um, and I mean, their feedback from that trip was pretty horrific. And I think that's yeah. the first time I kind of realized that, you know, it can't go wrong very quickly. And you've just, you've got to be on your game with what you do in aviation. And that goes for any yeah. aircraft. It can go wrong very quickly. And yeah. you don't have a lot of get out of jail free cards. <laughs> Yeah, no, I understand. Thank you. Um, so what happened after that first Iraq trip? I'm Because I'm, I'm you did so many return um, missions, in effect, I, I sort of got a bit lost in it. I, I wasn't always, it was felt like you were just permanently in the Middle East, um, in <laughs> no, Iraq I, and um, Afghanistan. Yeah, so I, I did my first Iraq, came back to the UK, Got my combat ready check, which was great. So that was done on, a, it was actually my first attempt was done on a, an exercise in the UK, up in Scotland. Um, and I failed it. So uh, I just had so many nerves and it was that classic, as soon as someone's watching you do your job, I was like, oh, and everything, went, it was just one of those days, everything went wrong. But I always like to say that to people, sometimes the best people fail their checks. <laughs> so I, I feel... It wasn't totally uncommon for that to happen, oh, though, no. was it? Oh, no, no, no. A lot so, of people did. you know, you weren't a massive exception. No. And it's sometimes I think good for people sometimes to feel things because it makes you realize, you know, you don't get cocky. You kind of work harder for it, don't you? So I then had a, another attempt at that. And that was in Germany, in Bruggen. And uh, the British forces used to have a massive footprint in Germany, but slowly all the bases started to close down. And Bruggen was one of the last ones that we had. So I was out in Bruggen and did my combat ready check on an Anderson load course, actually. So it was good because it was exactly what, you know, my bread and butter. Um, and then once I get combat ready, which is essentially your L plates taken off, you know, it's like off you go, fly my pretty, you know, get crack on. You don't need to be with an instructor anymore. So it was back to Iraq again for the second time. And this time I was able to get crewed up with um, a good friend of mine, a guy called Logie, and we were crewed up together. And it was just so much, I guess it's like passing your driving test. You don't really learn how to drive until there's no one there to ask the question like should I go now should yeah. I not go now you have to make the judgments for yourself and when you're combat ready and you're crewed up with your mate I mean it's you know everything every decision you make down the back of the aircraft is on you and because of that you almost 
you're 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 more on top of your game because you know that if you make the wrong decision or break the rules of loading on the aircraft, the the, the catastrophic effects would be pretty bad. So you, you absolutely yeah. think about what you're doing a bit more, and, and you grow up pretty quickly. So I did my yeah. second Iraq, and then the whole Chinook force withdrew from Iraq, and handed over to the Merlin fleet, and uh, turned our eyes towards Afghanistan, and and that's yeah. pretty much when it started to get interesting. Event Fire Solutions is an independent fire and rescue service providing both preventative and reactive emergency services across the UK. As well as our main event management, we provide the support and equipment to deliver a safe and risk-free event. From fire appliances to medical vehicles, our fully trained and accredited staff will make your event a true success. If you need risk-related advice, investigation, medical or fire training, and we can deliver this for you. From the office to the airfield, we have the experience and the accreditation and most of all the skills to make your workplace event safe and risk-free. To find out more of how we can help you, look us up at eventfiresolutions.co.uk. So we went to Afghanistan, I think my first appointment was 2005, so literally straight out of Iraq and straight into Afghanistan. Um, and at the time, the British forces were, well, the British Chinook force were flying from Kandahar. We raced in Kandahar. And Bastion didn't exist. It was just sort of the, the concept was there, and then some of the infrastructure started to be put in. So uh, initially, it was just a barbed wire fence with a couple of tents in the middle, and uh, and then we would deploy one Chinook down there to hold Mert. So that was what had previously been the IRT, which is the immediate response team, essentially got renamed the medical emergency response team. So almost exactly the same thing. And that had to be put in place quite early because it was British troops in Helmand, but only around Southern Helmand. So it was still just a place called Lashkagar, which you probably heard of on the news. It's like sort of a distant yep. hub. Um, place called Goresh and then we also had and Sangin was kind of in there as well in the mix and then we had one base way up north a place called Kajaki but other than that it was a very small footprint of British soldiers so we had one Chinook down at, at, um, at Camp Bastion living in what was essentially a dust bowl and everybody else was back at Kandahar um, I mean I remember when it, on the weeks that we were holding Mert down in Bastion you drive around in the Landover and it was like something out of Star Wars because it was just dust everywhere and you had to have your shemag on your face and your goggles on just to kind of see where you were going. Um, and and then as the years went on, the whole Chinook force moved from Kandahar to Bastion and Bastion just grew and grew and grew. And then the British troops moved up the Helmand Valley and, and lots of fobs sprung up. But by the time we left Afghanistan 10 years later, I think Bastion was the size. Someone said the size of Manchester. Now that seems a little bit over egged for me, but it was huge. Yeah, it was massive. Yeah. Now you talked about um, covering your face for the sand and the, the weather and all that. One of the things that uh, I learned in the books was how different the sand was. Oh yeah. <laughs> in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I count myself as a sand connoisseur these days. So <laughs> it's just sand around the globe. In that, before we went to any of these places, we had to go and practice in the sand. So, um, yeah. I mean, I've been to Morocco to train for uh, for Iraq. Uh, I've been to Jordan uh, again, training for Afghanistan, doing some mountain training and dust training in Wadi Rum, which is just a beautiful place. Uh, and I've also been out to California, which is. Um, Definitely my favorite out of the, <laughs> the others, but it's all the they're, they're, landings, and yeah. that is the difference. Is that Iraq's dust was very coarse, almost like you would find on a beach, um, here in the UK. Whereas in in Afghanistan, it was like talcum powder. It was so yeah. fine, and the implications of that meant that it was picked up by the aircraft very easily. So um, we would come in for a, a dust approach, as we call it, to land on. And you know, you see, with even with fixed wing aircraft, you make a, a, an approach to land, and it's a very, very obvious profile. But the problem is, is when you're kicking up the dust cloud, if you don't outrun that dust cloud, it engulfs the whole cockpit before that you can yeah. get your wheels on the ground. And that's where the skill comes in, really. That's why we practice in all those other countries. Because the pilots need to be able to get on the ground before that dust uh, takes all the references away. And certainly we as crewmen then need to let them know where the dust cloud is. And it's called pattering the dust cloud because they can't see it. I mean, they're sat at the front of a Chinook, which is essentially a 40 feet long cockpit or a cabin. And uh, and they don't know 
that it's coming to get them actually (laughs) so we we talk the dust cloud for them and and very much we can gauge pretty well um whether or not they're going to make it or they have to overshoot and that's where right and that's the sort of the golden word on the crew if you call overshoot then Mm. that's when the pilot should pull in power and pull straight out of the dust cloud right okay now afghanistan's became more and more challenging the impact both both on the RAF and the service and the military personnel was great, but also it was starting to have much more impact on the personalities as well. Um, you know, life, uh, it, it, as you say in the book, life goes on. You know, you go off to these places in the world, you know, you had started a new relationship and you had a new life setting about you. Um, but experiencing some of the the things that you saw was not easy yeah particularly particularly the mert absolutely so the mert um originally it was a week's duty so when you're right in afghanistan you'll be on mert for a week and then when you came off mert you would do what was called the routine tasking so moving all the troops around and I think after a couple of years, the commanders realized that that was just too detrimental on people. I'm going to say a couple of years, it was maybe only two. Um, so the duty went down to 24 hours on at a time because it was just, it, I, I, I'm not over-exaggerating when I say it, it was like scenes from MASH. Um, one of my bloodiest days in, in Afghan was 14 shots, IRT shots in one day. So it was relentless. And you would get a nine liner wow. would come through the, on the back phone, as we call it, which is essentially what the troops would send in, which was a casualty report. That would get phoned through to us and we would then sprint out of the aircraft, spin up and off you go. And very often throughout that time, and I'm talking sort of 2007 through to maybe 2011, um, you'd you'd launch to go and get one casualty and on the way you'd get an update that there's now two casualties or that the T2 casualty, which is how they classed the casualties in terms of injury, was now T1, so their injuries were getting worse. Um Sometimes you would get, uh, so T1 was the worst casualty, T3 was walking wounded, and TT was somewhere in between. Um, But T4 was when a a casualty had died. And very often we would be en route somewhere and either get the message that the T1 had become a T4, or we would have that on the back of the aircraft. We would have casualties who would die on the back of the aircraft and then have to pass that message back to Bastion, which was, you know, I I used to watch it happen in the back of the cab and yeah. you would see just the, the medics would just, there'd, there'd be the frantic moment and then they would just all stop and, and sort of heads would fall. They'd all look at each other and, and us as crewmen who are not medical experts, you know, our, our job was very much to still fly the aircraft and, and man the weapons to get back to Bastion. But you'd, you'd just know, you'd know in an instant yeah. what happened and then they'd obviously pass yeah. us the message in the intercom and we'd have to pass it back. So it was, I've seen, you know, I've seen people come back to life as well, though. I've seen people come over the ramp on a stretcher who were already dead and, and come back to life by the amazing medics that we had. But it took its toll. And I think yeah. being a woman, I never really wanted to be the girl who was crying at the back of the tent. So I was like, but I was very perceptive of the other people, you know, my other crewmates and and very often would go, mate, she'll go for a brew, you know, go and chat about what we've just seen today or whatever. Um, And I think they appreciated it. Um, I certainly hope that I helped some of my crewmates get through those times, but I was my own worst enemy and I never took my own advice and never really really (laughs) talked to anyone about it. You used to try and decompress, didn't you? You had your little spot against the wall. Against yeah, the, the glass walls. Yeah. yeah, I loved that. They were where we were situated in the accommodation. It was always a glass wall out the side of the accommodation. And uh, the lovely thing about Afghanistan is the heat up lows in the summer, in the during the day. But when you go out after dinner at about you know half six, seven o'clock, just as the sun's setting, there are lovely temperatures. So just love to sit and lie on the glass wall and. Um, for the Afghans every evening, because there were some Afghans on camp as well, you know, some of the local contractors, and they used to do a thing called call the prayer, which is their, their prayers in the evening. And uh, it was really comforting for something that I knew not a, a bean of what it meant, really. It was just, you know, nice to kind of like book in yeah. the day and go out and sit and sort of decompress a little bit with those things. So, um, yeah, and, and try and gather your thoughts really of what you've seen. Yeah, yeah. But it was building. Now, l- let me just park that for a moment. I want to come back to your role as, and I'm going to use the term crewman, because um, I'm not quite sure what else to use. Yeah, that's what um, it is. What's appropriate. And I know you you, you use it in the book. Um, what is the role of the crewman? What's your job? What are the things you do? So I guess it could be summed up as the eyes and ears for the pilot. 
because as I mentioned earlier, the pilot is sat at the very front of the aircraft and can see very little about what is going on behind him. So our main role is essentially a thing called voice marshalling, and that is talking the aircraft over positions or into clearings. So for example, when we're picking up the undersung loads I mentioned earlier, it's getting the pilot in a precise position above the undersung load to pick it up. And that's really important when you're picking up something like, you know, a, a very expensive piece of kit, a landover. You don't want to start ripping the wing mirrors off. So you've got to make sure you're in the overhead. 105 guns, Wimix, all those kind of vehicles that the, the Army use. Um, and it's also essential because imagine a conker on a piece of string. If you pick it up in your hands, not in the overhead, it swings instantly. So you end up either damaging personnel who are around it or buildings or or the, the equipment itself. So it's really important that the aircraft is above that understanding load when you pick it up. So yeah. that's our job is that precision when you're in the overhead picking up understanding loads. Uh, we also do lots of landing on slopes and we land in confined areas because not everything is a beautiful big landing site or a runway. So we practice that around the UK um, and the crewmen, it's our job to clear the aircraft. So you talk the aircraft from 40, 40 feet out, talk it into the clearance and then you let the the captain know whenever he's cleared to descend onto the ground and make sure that there's no you know trees he's going to hit or obstacles goalposts uh, or, or or people <laughs> portaloos is a special one we obviously make sure that we're not going to blow anything over um and the same for <laughs> you've got to be very careful when you're landing a helicopter on a slope that you're within limits of the helicopter yeah. so we yeah. assess that for the pilot so that's voice marshalling and then in terms of sort of the the practical side of it we do a lot of the radios we man the weapons and um, the, the tunic has a thing called a mini gun at the front on both sides which is always used to strike me as a funny name for it because there's nothing mini about that gun it's huge um and we have an m60 fitted to the ramp um so we would man the weapons in theater and then anything that goes inside that aircraft from the troops all the way through to you know landovers one of five guns stacks of post you name it we are look after that and the point being is that we have to make sure that they are crossed within cfg so when it lifts it's not going to be nose heavy or or a stack at any point and we also do a lot of we manage the cfg with anything that gets put under the aircraft um so any pass right. that we carry again it's, it's our duty to brief them almost like an air hostess but i'm sure most of my crewmen will shoot me for saying that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was i was genuinely genuinely surprised not that i should have been but i was genuinely surprised at things like how much radio traffic you were responsible for yeah um you know uh i always assumed it came from the it's not too pointy in the chinook but the pointy end you know but it yeah. doesn't does it you were responsible yeah. for an awful lot of radio traffic. Absolutely. More so in Afghanistan, we would take what was called the TAC radio. So it would be us speaking to the guys in the ground or the the um, the guys, you know, in the fobs, the ca- whoever was with the casualty, and then back to Bastion HQ. So uh, JTAC is like sort of the, um, the air traffic yeah. controller who's on the ground with the troops, and we'd be speaking to them. And also the Apaches. The Apaches used to come with us, and they would do what was called sort of um, overhead watch. So they would come in and do mutual support for us for a lot of the landing sites. So we would liaise with the Apaches as well. So, I mean, especially on things like a Mert shout, as soon as you bailed up on frequency and said Tricky 7-3, which was the Mert call sign, the rest of theatre stopped really talking on the radios and left the airwaves pretty free for us to chat. So you could chat away to the Apaches and chat to the, the guys on the ground. So it's it, we used Army voice procedures, which is very different to like what a normal air traffic kind of yeah. video patter is like. But we would do all of that. So um, right, and that just left the it, it left the pilots a bit more t- um, capacity to then fly the aircraft and not get shot, <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. useful. And 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 defence of the aircraft was very much your responsibility uh, as well. We're not going to take too much away from the book. There's a few examples that you do get your hands on that minigun um that that isn't isn't so many so you know there's an awful lot of responsibility um talk me through there's some a really interesting piece in the book where you talk about the chinook and how you you almost talk of it as a as a live being you talk about it it starting up and talk us through what does chinook mean mean to you you know those those days where you'd get there you'd then go through that startup process. And again, I was surprised how much you did on things like the startup and the shutdown. Yeah. So um, we were essentially engineers that could go flying. I mean, don't get me wrong, the engineers know a lot more about the aircraft than we do, but we can do all the start. 
without them so that we could have essentially go and land away on a, on a, like a field summer for an exercise we could do that solo as a crew without the need for engineers so that meant that we were qualified in every way to AF and BF the aircraft do the refuels and, and do very minor servicing if needed but I mean for me the Chinook and I hope that anyone who's watching this who's an aviator of any um, form it's the smell of an aircraft there's something about the smell of an aircraft or that you served on that will always stay with you it, it kind of gets in your soul and in your blood and um I was very lucky recently to go back up to the RAF Museum in Cosford where Bravo November has been retired and Bravo November is the most famous Chinook um it survived the Falklands it was the only Chinook that survived the Falklands and I've flown on it many times um and it was actually ironically my very first Chinook flight ever for mill flight when I was a baby baby crewman on the UCF and it was my very last flight uh whenever I was in the Falklands in 2015 but uh sorry 2017 but um Whenever I saw it, whenever I stepped on board Bravo November in, in the museum, it just brought me to tears. Just the smell of it straight away. Just to, and it's the hydraulics and all the you know, OM15 and OM26, which is the oils that are used on. You can just smell them. It's a very sweet smell. Um, so I mean that will always stay with me. I used to I used to make a laugh that like uh, OX20, uh, sorry OM15, which is the hydraulic fluid that we used. Uh, used to be my like perfume. I used to just <laughs> think of it all day after a flight, and uh, but again, you know, you got ingrained in your flying suit after a long trip. Yeah. So at home, and you just yeah. think of one fifteen. But um, yeah, the- and the no- the noise of the Chinook is unique. Um, yeah. I've been lucky enough to have one flight in a Chinook, and I, it it's shockingly loud, and it's <laughs> shockingly um, even with the, the the helmet on, it's really loud, and it vibrates a lot. You know, that sound, it goes right through you when you're actually in it. Um, but you talk about that sort of startup and shutdown of the uh, APU and how it all starts. Uh, how, how do you think you'd be now if you heard that sound? What sort of emotions would it bring up? Yeah, so I I mean, I, I don't live far from camp now, so I'm quite lucky that I'm still very close to Bramley, which is where we do a lot of our training. Um, and just as we started this podcast, actually, Chinook went past the window. So I still hear them nearly every day. And I'm still a bit like a five-year-old and run to the window and have a look out if I can see it because it's the sound of freedom. And that's what the troops call it. And you're right. It's that distinctive sound. I mean, I can tell a Chinook. I'm, I'm, I think most people could tell a Chinook a mile away over any other helicopter because it's that very distinctive thud, thud, thud. But um, I mean, the APU for me, that's that's what the start and end of every sortie is that APU. And and it as it closes down, especially in Afghanistan, whenever you shut that down, it was just, you could almost feel your shoulders relax. You'd peel off your helmet, peel off your body armor. You're absolutely knackered after like a 10-hour day flying on the back of the, <laughs> the aircraft. And, and it would start to crackle in the heat. So very, like you'd hear the crackling of the APU as it cooled down. And even the airframe kind of settling on its, on its wheels. And, and metal makes that noise as it starts to cool down. And it, yeah, it's yeah. very distinctive, yeah. Wonderful. Well, um, we'll go back to um, operations then. Um, we've mentioned how many times you were back and forward to, to, to Afghanistan. You, you operated in Iraq. You did that sand training. You did a couple of tours pretty much around, around the world. It's a, great, it's a great story for see the world, I've got to say. Yeah. Um, but you went back to um, the Falklands. And unfortunately, something that had been nagging you came home to roost a bit. Tell, yeah. tell us how this all started building up. So my neck had been playing up for quite some time. And uh, I mean, I don't think there's a crewman on the wing who has been flying on Chinooks for more, after like five years that hasn't got an injury. <laughs> We're all just old and falling apart. And uh, I mean, we used to laugh a lot because Puma crewmen always used to have really bad knees and lower backs because on the back of a Puma, they're always crunched, like crouched down or they're on their honkers or, um, you know, in a sort of, sort of on the knees position. Um, whereas in the Chinooks, it was always people's necks because we would have to, if you were really tall, you'd have to kind of hunch at the front door or if you were hanging underneath the aircraft looking at the centre hooks uh, and the forward and aft hooks, you would have the, your helmet on your head, which is quite heavy. And then certainly for like flying... Helmet is horrendously heavy. Yeah, I know. I just, I just sat there 
and yeah. I was tipping. I was tipping. So to lean out, your neck muscles must have been under a great deal of stress Absolutely. and strain. Absolutely. And I mean, your ha- I mean, you've got your helmet on your head, and it's heavy enough, as you mentioned. Then put some night vision goggles on the front of it, and to stop your helmet sliding forward, we then get issued a counterbalance weight, which gets velcroed onto the back of your helmet for night flying. Wow. So you've essentially like quadrupled what your head weighs. Now, if you were just stood up straight, that you'll probably be okay, but you're not on a chinook. You're looking underneath the aircraft. You're moving your head around on a, essentially a fulcrum. Even at the front door, you've got your head out in the wind and you're just out of that central position. So most crewmen have got neck issues, really. And mine just got worse and worse and worse. And I loved flying. So I very rarely fessed up to it because as soon as you kind of go with the neck injury to the med center, the first thing they're going to do is say, no flying for you which um so I I put it off and off and off uh and I went to the Falkland I'd actually had fessed up to it eventually after a colleague and I were walking in one day from a sortie and uh, at Odium and he said something to me and I turned my whole body to look at him and he went go to the physio is and I said okay okay fair cop I will so I went and they said yeah downgraded had to go through some physio lots of rehab and they kind I would say they kind of got me to good enough place to go flying again with a little bit of sort of yeah I'm fine for me when I wasn't really but I just love flying so I then went off to the Falklands and did my last Falkland debt down there in January 2017 and on my last week of my my tasking down there I just woke up one morning and it was like being attached to a crucifix I couldn't move my head my neck anything so I had emergency physio down there Came back to the UK, got uh, sent to Headley Court, which was where, funny enough, all the, the injured guys that we picked up of the years had gone. And that, for me, was quite weird. I found it really weird being at Headley Court. And at the time, I felt like it was a bit of a ghost um, you know, place. There was like lots of empty rooms, and it was um, very quiet. And one of the guys on my course said he'd been there before during the heyday of Afghan, and there was a waiting list for rooms which hit me quite hard because I saw the size of Headley Court and the capacity that it has. And to know that that I was actually completely full at one point was quite was quite scary. But Headley Court tried their best, but sadly the the um, the, the damage in my neck was irreparable. So I've got two damaged discs in my top neck now. So that was it. Flying days gone. And I uh, came back from Falklands, never flew again. Yeah. And you tried a desk for a while, didn't you? <laughs> but it- yeah. Didn't just, smell just the same. There was no, there was no, no. fluid. It just didn't smell the no. same. But no, I, no APUs. Yeah, and I looked out the window every day. My desk was in SHQ at Odium, so I, I was quite lucky. I could see out the window and see Chinooks taxiing out and ready for their takeoff for each adventure every day or do understand loads around the airfield. Hmm. And it just wasn't the same. You know, I joined the Air Force to fly, as I think a lot of people do, and um, and just sitting there feeling like sort of I was on the scrap heap. And, and certainly no one made me feel like that. This is very much an internal turmoil that I had. But I just thought that yeah. if I can't do the job I love doing, then then what's the point? You know, I was young enough to be able to maybe cut away and start a whole new career. And I thought yeah. I could do that. Or I could just, what I felt was sitting and rotting in a in a, a desk job, which was not the case. But I think that's how I felt at the time. Did you know that the first G-suit for British pilots was essentially a chest-high pair of fishermen's waders which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. You were married at this time and your partner, also in the the forces, was also coming to the end of his uh, military service. And you sort of both ended up demobbing at the same sort of time. Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, myself and my ex, we met in Iraq in 2005. You know, we had met in a war zone, um, had an amazing career together. Um, he was at the sharp end of the British military and I, you know, I was doing a great job with the British, with the RAF and, and we both came out at exactly the same time. He came to the end of his service and then obviously I, you know, I got my injury and came out and 
you know, we'd spent so many years apart, even though we were together. It, he was deployed to Iraq when I was in Afghanistan. And there was one year we spent three weeks together in a whole year. Um, but it, it was brilliant because when we were together, we really made it work. And we had so much yeah. in common because of what we did. But suddenly we found ourselves both on the, what essentially say it was the scrap heap, like has beens. And it's very hard when you've gone from something with so much purpose to then go, I used to be in the RAF or I used to be a crewman. And it's a yeah. time I can quite happily say now, but I think I really struggled to say that. I really hated the fact that it was something I used to do, you know, because for me, a crewman was what I was born to do. It's like, you cut me open and there's the round all inside. That was my, that was who I was, not what I was. And, mm-hmm. and he was the same, really. I think we both struggled. So we had a really horrendous year in 2019 and then decided, yeah, it's just uh, yep. unfixable. And uh, yeah. And, and and this is part of um in effect the last third of the of your story in the book not not your career or your life it's just the book yeah third. you've got plenty to go and that's what's really positive about the whole experience but um you call it the domino effect and things were starting to build up at this time and the pressure of the role that you'd undertaken the mer the pressure on your personal life um, and the stuff you were carrying around in your head was all starting to to, to build. But you did uh, start a job with an organization you've come to love. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so whenever I left um, officially, the last day in Iraq was uh, in 2019, uh, and I started a job with a wonderful charity called Airability, who hopefully some listeners may have heard of. Um, and ironically, yeah. they're just on the road from Odium. They're not far at all, but I'd never heard of them. And they'd been to so many uh, Station Families Days and, and various visits to Station, but I'd never heard of them. And it's that classic when you're not looking for something, but then it, it finds you. Um so I went down to Airability. Uh, another guy who was in the army had actually part of the resettlement um, that we do is we're leaving the forces. My name had come up on a CV search he was doing and he contacted me and said, Liz, I think you'd be really good for the charity. So I went down to visit them at Blackbush. And what Airability do is they uh, are disabled flying charity there um, and they fly civilians and disabled veterans uh, and get them into the air all the way up to PPL, some people. And I went and had a visit and I was just sold. I mean, there, I finally felt like I had my purpose back. It was like what Airability did was essentially, I mean, I, I saw some veterans I'd picked up on my merch shouts in Afghanistan, you know, wow. come in and do their flying training and then go off flying for the day as a pilot. And I thought, well, wow, isn't that just amazing? I mean, there's these people who I've seen on a stretcher and now they're off in the air flying. Um, yeah. And that was all because of what Airability did. And uh, so I loved it. So I did uh, work for them for a few years, actually. Then in, in, in true fashion in life, opportunities that appear to be fantastic and wonderful came, came, came across you and you took a bit of a change of direction, but didn't quite work out, did it? No, no. So I was um, offered a job working back at Odium. Uh, in the simulator there which is an amazing simulator it's a virtual reality simulator so uh, from a crewman's point of view most of the sim we'd had before was um, uh, basically just a cockpit and we would sit at the back of the simulator and we'd just press a button to pick up the underswing load and press a button to get rid of it and and, and practice the emergencies but it wasn't really very hands-on and suddenly we had this brand new sim and it had mini guns in it it had an m60 and it was all virtual reality so you put the helmet on and you could see through the center hatch and it was phenomenal and I got offered a job to go and work there so uh, I snapped it up and off I went and I would be working with all my colleagues again from previous life and and thought it'd be just like being back in the squadron and it wasn't, uh, it very quickly became apparent that, you know, again, I was almost, my job was still pressing the buttons. It was the other people that were having a good time in the sim and doing all the Gucci stuff. Um, and I was, you know, I was back at Odeon, but not wearing my RAF uniform. And it just felt very wrong. It just didn't feel like it was my story. You know, I didn't yeah. enjoy it at all. So, um, I mean, the company was fantastic, but it just wasn't for me. Wrong fit. Yeah. So, um, I didn't stay there very long. And thankfully, um, my path crossed with Airability again just after leaving that job. And, and Mike Miller-Smith, who's the boss at Airability, had had something in mind for me again. And I ended up going back to Airability in uh, twenty start of 2020. Yeah. And that's a safety net we're coming back to. But um, let's now just talk about the sort of final bit of the domino effect. And that was COVID and the lockdown. And you were back in near Odium, you were back in your flat, you were on your own, because of what we've talked about. But things started to to pile up. And 
I don't think I want to explore too much of that because it's in the book. And I think it's a something that people should read and, and, and feel in the detail that you give it. But I think it's fair to say that it all built up and eventually it, it all became too much for you. Yeah. And you sought and you sought some help, but that help didn't help. No. So, um, yeah, I, I say I won't, I won't, I won't spoil the details of the story, but I, um, I did very much became unravels as, as lockdown hit. And like you say, suddenly all my coping mechanisms, um, from everything I'd been doing in the forces, which was mainly running. I did a lot of running. I used to find running was really good to empty the bucket of what I'd seen during the day. Um, and socializing with friends, like we all do, you know, when times are tough, most of us try to keep busy, don't we? And then suddenly none of us could keep busy because we were locked on. So I found my, I got, I got insomnia, really bad insomnia. And during the night, I would find myself looking up the backstories of some of the guys I picked up on merch shouts and which was something we had never done before because I knew how destructive it could be. Um, but there I find myself doing it and knowing very obviously that I was becoming unraveled, uh, but didn't say a thing, you know, still didn't want to be Liz who I didn't want to be a burden to anyone. And I think that's something we, we're all guilty of sometimes is we hold everything inside instead of just going, I, I actually think I might need a bit of help here because sometimes asking for help is the hardest words to say, isn't it? So mm-hmm. yeah, became very unraveled, had an incident in 2020 and then essentially went into the recovery system of uh, PTSD resolutions and help for heroes um, to kind of put back all the, I I described the day that I had my meltdown as, um, you know, chucking all the files that I'd hidden away at the back of my brain all over the floor um, and trying to put them back in there. I think the important part was reading them, acknowledging the trauma in each and every incident and then throwing it back into my brain where it needed to go. But I think, you know, if you just scoop it all up and put it back in there, that doesn't work. So you have to kind of dissect it all and and understand what that meant to you. And I think most importantly that it's normal to feel like that after some of the things I'd seen. To be fair to you, Liz, looking back and reading that, you did extend to ask for some help and the system was broken, really. The system was broken. You didn't get the help that you needed and I think we need to say this, that you committed suicide. Yeah. So on the 20th of August, um, and I woke up that day, I, I describe it very much as an out-of-body experience. You know, it was like watching my life through a movie from the second I woke up that morning um, on a on a one-way mission, almost like being back at work. It was like, you've got to plan this and execute this today. Um, and, and reached out, as you mentioned, straight away for help with the GP, called the GP, got given up the run around saying we have no appointments today, broke down in tears, eventually managed to get through to someone and the doctor called me back and didn't do much except issue me with some more pills on top of some pills I already had. And uh, yeah, that evening I took a huge overdose, ended up in intensive care for two days on life support, none of which I remember, um, and came out mm-hmm. the other side. So you're right, you know, I, I definitely reached out for help. I kind of knew that I was not myself that day. I, I, I it was like being a, a, on a water slide at a water park and having your donut. And I was checked in, ready to go. No one yeah. could stop me going down that slide that day. Yeah. Um, and I'm just lucky that I did survive. And ho- like I'm here to tell my story and, and hopefully help others who are not just in that mental health. You know, I hope nobody, you know, get, ever gets to that stage. But also from anyone who's been affected by suicide with the loss, um, kind of to reach out to them and say, there's not a lot sometimes when someone gets to that point there's very little you can do and I think the important thing is to the emphasis on individuals to recognize it in themselves early on and talk but also other people to kind of I always say this ask twice you know if someone's not okay we're very quick to go how are you and people go I'm fine um but if you ask second time most of the time it's just enough to kind of break the eggshell on someone and they might just let it out so that's important yeah and there were some some signals that fortunately people very close to you picked up. And that's why you're here talking to us today, because you probably wouldn't have been. And and there was an angel looking down on you. And I, I, I do want to mention Anna. She, she appears in your story. She's a part of your journey. As I've said, I did cry at that bit. Uh, um, it felt very, very real and, and very hard. But that angel shone down on you. Tell us about how you were able to recover. You did get some help eventually. You did get the right help. Let's talk about some of those organizations that helped you and are there for others. Yeah, and I feel very lucky. When I came out of hospital, I was instantly referred into the veteran health system. Um, 
And I'm absolutely aware that the civilian health system is not that good uh, when it comes to mental health. Uh, I mean, I think the current waiting time is something like 14 weeks to get seen by someone. I was in on the Monday. So I came out of the hospital on Saturday. Uh, on the Monday morning, made a phone call to Veterans Gateway. And, and that's probably one of the hardest phone calls I've ever had to make, actually. Um, I say it in the book is that we're all just admitting that you need help. It's really hard. Um, Veterans Gateway, funny enough, we've got a text message that you can send a text to or a text number because they, I think they've picked up on that. They've picked up on just how hard it is sometimes to pick up the phone and just say those words. But I phoned on the Monday. Um, I was then um, into the, a, a charity called PTSD Resolutions. They were really good. They assigned me to the counsellor. So I had a couple of counselling sessions with a lady from PTSD Resolutions. Um, and I remember coming out of those and feeling very broken. It suddenly occurred to me, just how big a mountain I had to climb to get back to a level playing field uh you know I thought I thought my low point was the suicide I thought well it can't get any worse than that can it and I was almost euphoric when I left hospital because I thought well I'm broken now I've broken myself so nothing can get worse and that wasn't the case it was it was almost just the tip of the iceberg it was the the tin the lid coming off the tin and then the journey of putting everything back together really began so I think you know it's fair to say I felt worse before I felt better in terms of starting to go through all the trauma um and then when I got to help for heroes their counselor just really clicked with me a lady called Pauline and she was which is my mom's name ironically uh and she was she was just brilliant absolutely amazing and and I think you know gave me feel normal for feeling like that which is really important yeah and what was really important is actually realizing uh, sorry putting words into your to your mouth here is realizing actually some of the people that are around you and close to you are the most important people to help you on that journey to recover absolutely um my air force family well are they are just that you know they're actually family uh we've been through so much together and they were the people i missed during lockdown you know i wasn't able to see them and catch up with them but they mm. instantly were just there like a massive support network ready, with their catcher mitts on ready to get me any moment um and my family were just absolutely amazing as well the problem with being a forces family uh, well some a forces generation with my brother is that we're all spread the four winds so i obviously moved away from home age 19 my brother's in the army so he lives miles away and my other brother lives in Scotland so we're all very dissected but what we did do was start to connect on the phone a lot more and just those little weekly check-ins so my family were amazing but yeah certainly my my local friends and my forces friends were absolutely and air ability I mean I I, I mentioned them in a, a few times in those final chapters of the book that one day I looked around and thought, God, you know, everyone in this room has got a disability that they can see, yeah. and, but I'm the most broken. And it was, you know, I think that really highlights mental health is that, you know, there's me, the one in the office who's taken an overdose and everyone else is there in their wheelchairs and various forms of being put together. And yeah, I'm the one that tried to kill myself. And I thought, well, you know, that just says everything about mental health. You just can't see the injury, but it's just as relevant as as everything else. But they yeah. were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, We're so delighted to see the positive um, nature that you have and you make it very clear this is a journey and it doesn't stop, it continues. So it's really important for for people in and around individuals like yourself to recognize that and be aware of that and to help nurture that that forward. But Liz, thank you so much for your honesty. Um, It's been, I absolutely loved the book. I know it's got some, some hard points in it. Um, but there's some some great funny stories as well, which we haven't talked about, and we've left those for for the, for the readers. Um, so thanks so much. But where can we find you online, Liz? Where can we find you on social media? So I've got I've recently joined Twitter. Uh, yeah, I haven't been on Twitter before, so I've just joined Twitter, and I'm uh, at Chini Krujic uh, on on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram as Chinik Krujic chick so uh yeah the title of the book okay which is easy to remember you just google that on either yep. of those platforms you can find me and it'd be lovely to connect with some people who have either had you know similar experiences people i could try and help i mean i'm certainly not a counselor but because of what i've been through i hopefully can offer a few words of advice or support um and at the back of the book there's some signposting towards some really useful services yeah those numbers to call and text but yeah please please reach out people and, and come and follow me on social media Right, and we'll put links to those in the show notes and so you'll be able to read it on your podcast players uh, directly. But if you want to get a, um, a copy of Liz's book, Chinook Crew Chick, um, you can do so at our bookstore. We'll put a link in the show notes. And just remember, re- re- when you're buying from our bookstore, um, this supports the authors and local bo- 
bookshops, shall we say, a little bit more than some of the more better known um, access points. So use your local bookstores and support the authors. Um, If you'd like to support the program, uh, we welcome listener donations. We like reviews on Apple Podcasts or five-star reviews on Spotify. And of course, if you do have to go to Amazon, you can buy your shopping through the link on our website. (laughs) Please remember to follow Eventfire Solutions on Twitter at EMFS999 and of course, The Aviation Historian as well. You can find me at NASCAR Ornit on Twitter and you can find the extended team on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And that's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Liz. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Our legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website. Please do ask before using anything you hear. The programme is produced with a Creative Commons licence. Please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast. It genuinely helps grow our programme and broaden its reach. You can also review the programme and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. This is XTP Media.